Hey, if we haven't met, my name is Pastor Mark. If we haven't met, come meet me afterwards. Come say hi. Zach and I love to meet um, new people. Um, and so if we haven't met and you're like, who is this guy and why is he yelling at me? Um, come up afterwards and uh, say hi. So uh, if you need a Bible, uh, put your hand in the air. No shame in your game. All right. This is yours to keep if you don't have one. Okay. Just ask that you don't hoard them and sell them on eBay. <coughs> If you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. <clears throat> I can't get too rowdy. I'll break something up here. I'm kind of surrounded. Dane's got a lot of trust. He puts that stuff that close to me, man. I've done some weird stuff up here before. Not this series, though. So, Matthew 16, if you want to scan down, we're going to begin in verse 13. So Matthew 16, verse 13, I'm going to pray, and then uh, we will get started. So uh, pray with me. Um, Holy Spirit, I've got nothing tonight, nothing. I have nothing to offer these people. I have nothing to offer your people, but you have so much that you want to give your people. And so I just empty myself, as I have been, as I've been preparing, just empty myself. Just avail myself, open myself up to just be used by you. If I do creep up, Holy Spirit, would you just cause people to forget everything that I say? Uh, Just let everything that comes from you be absorbed. Conviction, exhortation. Jesus, just love on your people through me. I'll take none of the glory. I'll take all of the blame. Jesus, that tonight we'd see you more high and lifted up, that we'd put you out in front, that we'd understand that your ways are higher than our ways, even in the midst of our failure. And so would you begin to restore your people, build your people up, even through a heavy text that ends sharply? Would you have your way with us tonight? Again, all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you're new, welcome to Sunday Nights at Godspeak. We are currently going through a four-week series. We are in week two of a four-week series called Faith and Failure, okay? Faith and Failure. And it's a little heavy, is it not? Right? It's been heavy for me studying and meditating on the motorcycle every day about failures in my faith, about, about the ways in which that we fail in our faith. And so if you're in faith, a lot of times we, we, we trust ourselves too much. Say, well, I'm in faith and I've done a good job. And then what happens is that we realize that after we've converted, after we've, whenever, whether that was when you were young or more recently, we very quickly realize that we are still yet failures in our faith. And so what we're doing, endeavoring to do in this series is take a look at a, 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 just a quirky guy by the name of Peter. He really is. And we're taking a look at, last week we kind of took a look at two scenes, didn't we? We took a look at when he was first called to be a disciple and Jesus went out into the boat. He said, look, cast your net over that side of the, the boat and you're going to catch fish. And he's like, <laughs> okay, we've already done that, Right. And we do the same thing. Jesus says, look, here's my plan for you. Like, okay, I've tried that before. 
Okay, it didn't work. I, I read my Bible once when I was four, and I didn't get anything out of it, so I haven't read it since. Right? So I, just, I know I'm supposed to, but I didn't get anything out of it. And Jesus says, press into me, press into my word, press into prayer. I've heard about this whole prayer thing. I've heard it works for some people. I'm not one of those people, okay? And we just sort of don't, tr- we don't take Jesus for his word. We don't trust what he says. And Peter didn't necessarily trust what he says. He followed through. He did throw his net, didn't he? Sort of like, okay, well, check this out, Jesus, right? And they caught so much fish, they had to call in reinforcements. The nets are breaking. And these aren't like cute nets. These are like ropes, Right? Anyone just like broken a rope lately? No, you know, you haven't broken a rope lately. That's the point of a rope, okay? So much fish, so much abundance. Jesus says, I come that you may have life and life more what? Disciplined? A life of less fun? Because I got a lot of rules for you to follow? What do you say? I'm going to come give you a life and life more? Abundant. Abundant. And so his ways are higher. His ways do produce more abundance in ways that we don't see yet. Even when he calls us to do things that we've already been doing. And so we saw that scene. And one of the ways that we fail in our faith is that we don't trust what Jesus says. Ultimately, because we don't truly, legitimately, purely at the core of our heart believe he is who he is. Because if we did, we'd do anything he says immediately right away. But here's the crazy thing. Some of us are like, I struggle with believing Jesus is who he says he is. And I get it. It's 2015. Peter was right there, eye to eye, and he struggled with it. Let yourself off the hook just a little bit. You can experience the spirit of Jesus through the Holy Spirit, but Peter was there physically witnessing the incarnation, and he still struggled with his faith. And so Jesus says, look, cast your net. He's like, we've done this. Okay. And the abundance that came. And then we saw a few scenes later in the ministry when Jesus had sent the disciples out into the the Sea of Galilee and he went off to a mountain to pray. And they get caught in one of these, still to this day, very common windstorms because of how low the Sea of Galilee is and the way that the mountains up to 2,000 feet will swoop all the way down to some 700 feet below sea level. And when that cool air crashes with that warm Mediterranean air, these windstorms pop up out of nowhere. I've been on the Sea of Galilee. It's, it's almost never calm. It's almost never just like, wow, it's, it's like a glass lake. It's just cool. There's always something stirring. Warm, cold breezes, mountains. Still to this day, this stuff is, it still exists. It's the best thing about archaeology. Every time they unturn a stone, they're like, shoot, that proved the Bible right again. That's why you don't hear about it on the news, right? You, don't, you didn't hear about the fact that they found chariot remains where the Red Sea would have been at that time. You didn't hear about that, did you? No. Well, Bailey, that's because you're a nerd and you just all day just... <laughs> See, you at Gold's and at home, that's it, because we live in the same neighborhood. And he's just back and forth, the gym and the internet, right? That's your life right there. So Bailey's heard of it, right? The news isn't excited about it. New York Times wasn't like, holy smokes, they proved the Bible right again, Right? This stuff is still active. And so this, this sea, this sea of Galilee still exists. These storms still exist. And these fishermen get caught up in this storm. And they freak out like they did the first time when Jesus was napping. They freak out. And then what does Jesus come doing? He comes rollerblading in on the water. It's when rollerblading was invented. You didn't know that. He just comes surfing in without a board, Right? 
and he comes in. And they're screaming. They're like, Jesus, get in the boat. We're all going to die. Get in the boat. But not Peter, right? Peter's a little, you know, when it comes, he's like, I'm coming out. <laughs> you pee in his robe. He's like, I'm still coming out. I don't care. Let's go. Let's go, right? And that's, that's Peter. He just wants to walk on the water. And you need to know Peter's a fisherman. He, look, he's a roughneck. I hate what we do, especially in America, in our minds. I know because I've been there. I hate what we do with the apostles. I hate what we do with Jesus. Like he was like pretty. And just like soft and tender. And I can't, it's, it's absurd. Are you kidding me? No one back there looked like that. They said Jesus had no, I mean, you couldn't pick him out from a mangy crowd, the Bible said. You just couldn't, you wouldn't even notice him. You wouldn't. He was a carpenter. He worked with rocks. Peter was a fisherman. Dude stunk for a living. He worked with fish guts all day. People were like, oh, he was holy and glowing. No, that was the fish gut smell. It was just sort of radiating. And he was a roughneck. He probably cussed like a sailor. He was a roughneck, dirty all the time. He wasn't up on fashion. He didn't wear skinny jeans, right? He wasn't like on Pinterest, right? <laughs> There was fishing to be done, right? And so he was a blue collar. I liken him like he's a modern day like truck driver, right? Like I just went to Arizona two weekends ago and it's like you stop in like loves, you know, like the truck stops. You're like, I, I love you. You guys are different people, you know? It's like, I'm a suburban kid. I don't, you know, I've got a buddy that was a truck driver too. He's like, man, it's a whole different culture. It's a whole different culture. Blue collar, that was Peter, and we saw from before he followed Jesus and even after he followed Jesus, he just runs toward Jesus and falls on his face. How many of you feel like that? You feel like a one and a half year old, right? You cannot keep your feet in your faith. Just, I got a three-year-old kid inherited clumsiness from my wife. I mean, it's like a sniper is following us around. It's like, oh, Ash is down again. You're like looking for a sniper. Like, it looks like he got shot. He's down like, you're in an open field, child, right? <laughs> right? Just hits the ground. And that's how we feel in our faith, isn't it? Just like, here it is, America. For the most part, it's pretty great. Let's be honest. Like, this isn't Iran. This isn't Saudi Arabia. It's pretty open. It's pretty free. I'm I'm the first to admit it's getting worse and it's going to get worse. The Bible predicted that. It's going to get worse. But right now it's pretty open. It's pretty free in your faith. And what do we do? We're just on our face every day. That's Peter stumbling the whole way through. He's like, Jesus, I'm coming out. Just tell me to come. Jesus is like, all right, come out, Peter. And he gets out and he's walking on water. He's actually participating in a miracle, right? The whole world is upside down. And in that moment, Jesus turns it right side up. He says, I'm the creator. If I tell you to walk on water, you walk on water. And he gets out and he's among the sea. I can't even imagine the waves. And he's just got his eyes on Jesus. But the storm isn't the threat. The storm isn't what caused danger in the scenario. The Bible says it was when he looked at the wind and the waves. When he looked at the trial in his life. And it's not so much that we pretend like we don't see our trials. It's the the understanding that sometimes we fail in our faith by taking our eyes off of Jesus in the trials. That's how we sometimes fail in our faith is that we've got our eyes on Jesus and a trial hits and it's a miracle. We get into it and then for some reason we take our eyes off Jesus and we begin to sink. But we saw Jesus immediately, the Bible says. Immediately, 
When Peter cried out, Lord, save me, immediately, Jesus wasn't like, there's a lesson to learn. I'll wait till you get to your nose. You learned it? It says immediately, he took no pleasure. He took no pleasure in that. It was like, it's a great lesson for you to learn. I'm gonna let you go down a little bit farther. Immediately, Jesus reaches out and plucks us. And it doesn't mean that the storm has to stop necessarily, but it means that Jesus has us in his firm grasp through it. When you keep your eyes on Jesus, he has his firm grasp on you through the trial. So even before Peter was called to be a disciple, he was stumbling in his faith, not trusting what Jesus said, not perhaps at its core, not trusting Jesus really was who he said he was. Then he steps out in faith, quite literally, a follower of Jesus now, a bold follower of Jesus. We mustn't forget how bold Peter was and commend him for that. Because we lack boldness in the American church. We do. We've been so beat down by our friends. We've been so beat down by atheist memes on Facebook. And we haven't studied to show ourselves approved. We don't know how to defend a God that exists. We don't know how to defend and give the tenets for our faith. And, but he does. He steps out in boldness and he trips and he sinks. And so he's, he's, he's this perfectly relatable apostle, right? Like I joke, like sometimes I can't, you know, I can't, Zach said it too, like I can't relate with David. I can't really, maybe with the slip up with Bathsheba, like I, I, I struggle with lust sometimes, right? When I see pretty girls, it's, it's just a part of life. But he just took it to another level, dudes killing husbands. I can't, just all the wealth, all the knowledge, all the wisdom, kingdoms. I don't know that. I have a condo, right? Like I don't know what it's like to be David. I never will with property taxes and cost of living out here. Not going to happen. I don't even have a backyard. I have a slab of concrete about that big, right? I can't really relate with, but man, man, we can relate with Peter. Called by Jesus specifically and just fumbling the whole way through. And he just gets back up and he just wants to do something else bold. He wants to do something else bold, but there's, there's something to be learned, not only in his boldness, but also in his failure, because you're going to experience that. Contrary to the prosperity gospel, coming to Christ doesn't mean it stops sucking at times. It doesn't mean that you stop sucking at times. Because we're going to continue to fail. And as we'll see, especially next week and in the last week of this series, we'll see how Jesus uses this failure. But these first two, these first two scenes that we look at, we really have to scrape, we have to pull back the veneer of some of these ways in which we fail in our faith before we can be built back up in those failures. And so we come to Matthew 16. And, and if you've got a Bible and it's yours, I, I'd, I'd, I'd encourage you to do what I did, which is just put like this bracket around verses 13 through 20 and just write faith, right? As part of our title. It's not brain surgery. And then from verses 21 to 23, put a bracket around it and just put failure It's, I just want to show you as clearly as possible in your own handwriting how failure absolutely unequivocally can and will follow even bold proclamations of faith. And Peter still made the Bible. It's not like God's like, leave him out. He keeps screwing up. Let's write a better story than that. No, this is the better story. Is that in our failure, God uses it. And so we start at verse 13 and we're going to see some amazing proclamations of faith 
And leading up to this in this chapter, we've been seeing that Jesus has been performing miracles. Since the water incident, since the boat, they've made it to shore. Jesus has been performing miracles. He's been healing the sick and casting out demons and feeding the multitudes. He's been contending with religious leaders. Have you ever noticed that? You ever noticed Jesus never picked a fight with the broken, the downtrodden, the outcast? Who's he always fighting with? The religious people. The people that are using their religion to manipulate and steer people away from a faith that requires a relationship. And so Jesus contends with religious people. At some point tonight, I may contend with some of you who are just simply here because you need to check that box off for the week. Jesus could care less about the boxes you check off in a week. Or else he would have been best friends with the Pharisees. You guys are killing it. You're like the all-star team at church. And they were. We're not even JV compared to these guys. Like I, I, I recited my memory verse for the week. Cool, they recited books. Right? They recited books just to get going. And so he's contending with these religious leaders who are the folks that were unwilling to follow him because they had their own power to protect. But you're also going to see now that Jesus is going to contend with Peter who is following him. Jesus not only contends with those who don't follow him, you better be sure he does. This isn't Kumbaya Jesus. He didn't hold interpersonal faith meetings, tell everyone that we generally believe the same thing. He said, I, come, he said, I did not come for peace, but to bring the sword. And he didn't mean militantly. He said, look, I'm going to cause division. And he contends with those who don't follow him, to be sure. But we've got to remember as a church that he contends with those of us who do at times as well. He has every right to. And so we're about to see, but first we're about to see an epic picture of faith. Verse 13, it says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now this is roughly 25 miles northeast of the lake where they were, okay? Anyone walked 25 miles recently? Anyone? Put your hand up. Me? No, I barely, I get tired on the motorcycle about 25 miles. I'm like, my wrist is sore, okay? I need to take a break. Chevron, get a protein bar or something. Walk 25 miles. Just, just again, I say it, I joke, but I'm serious. His cardio was on point. He just, he just could just out-treadmill the living daylights out of us, right? Just crushing it. They would just walk. It was exhausting being a disciple of Jesus. He asks you to walk long distances. About 25 miles. So they've walked and he's been healing. He's been preaching. He's teaching. He's fighting with the religious people who come down, who scamper down to contend with them. And the disciples are following him. And now they're about 25 miles northeast of the lake. And it says he came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. And you can still go there today, by the way. It's a place littered with idols and rival gods. You can go there and see where they had their temples. They had their little caves that they would go and worship different deities. You can go there. I've been there. I highly encourage you at some point, save up a trip. Don't go to Hawaii. Go to Israel. Okay. You know what Hawaii is going to be like. It's a postcard. It's boring every day. Okay. It's just go to Israel. It's crazy. You can see these places. Came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, this this is a population in this area was mainly non-Jewish. So they're pagan. He wasn't contending necessarily with, with, with Jews or in the, in the context of Judaism. He was outside. 
okay? So they went out to this pagan land with pagan. They said, look, any idol you want, pick a cave, go out there, do your thing. He came into the region of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? Now, Jesus wasn't uncertain of his identity, okay? It's just like in the garden where he comes down, he's like, Adam, where are you? It's not like, oh, cute, they're playing hide and seek, right? Like, God always sets up a far more important question. He did it in the garden. Where are you? Where are you, Adam? He knew where Adam was, right? He wanted to ask Adam what he had done. And Jesus here isn't uncertain about his identity. He's not relying on anyone else's definition to obtain it. Like a good teacher, he's setting up a far more important question. He's priming the pump. It says, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, who was a national reformer. He called the nation to repentance. Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah, who was an amazing miracle worker. Worked miracles. Seemingly bent the law of nature at times. Some, some say you're him. I mean, we just fed 20,000 people with a Lunchable. Right? <clears throat> some said John the Baptist. Some said Elijah. Others said Jeremiah, who brought word from God as a prophet. And it says, or one of the other prophets. Prophets are those who bring new word from God. Notice a lot of all, a lot of times we look at this, we're like, what a terrible, oh my gosh, you guys thought that. This is actually, I mean, this is kind of like a compliment almost. These aren't bad things to be called. Like if someone comes up and is like, man, I see a lot of John the Baptist in you. It's like, oh, right? Thanks. Like Elijah, like bold prophet. You're like, kind of like Jeremiah. It's like, man, thanks. Right? These are somewhat complimentary, but they're entirely insufficient. When it comes to Jesus, any mere man would be excited to be in the same bucket as these guys thrive on. You're putting me in the bucket with John, with Elijah, with Jeremiah. Are you kidding me? I'm in that bucket. Good day, right? Might even make the Bible at that point. These are complementary in one sense. They're, in an earthly sense, these are complementary things to be ascribed to and that to be put in that bucket. And yet it's entirely insufficient. Some of you come tonight and you think Jesus was just a, just a radical teacher and we should look at him and because he was just so cool. He was always against the man. He was always anti-establishment. He was peace, love. He was rock and roll. He was just a really epic reformer. Jesus wasn't radical, he was perfect. What Jesus showed is how radical and crazy we are running around him. Like, wow, he was crazy, he did all this weird stuff. No, he did perfection. We just realized how bent out of shape we are. So, wow, he's Elijah, he's just kind of this miracle worker, right? It's really cool. And so people get into mystic stuff. You get into just some weird spirituality. I don't want to be religious. I want to be spiritual. I want to do yoga. I want to like sort of just tap into my Eastern. I love what the Dalai Lama said about Paris. And, and you just sort of love the spirituality, not forgetting that there's two sides to that war. 
You can't simply tap the spiritual side. You have to define which side you're on. Bible says there's angels and there's demons. Pick a team. I'm spiritual. I know which one. I know which one. He was this great miracle. He just did really cool stuff. Kind of a sleight of hand card trick nonsense. It's great. Some of you just say, look, he was a great prophet. He spoke on behalf of God, just taught some really cool things, really deep. I mean, we even studied him in philosophy, just as one of the great philosophical minds of our day. These things ascribed to men are complementary. These things ascribed to God himself are entirely insufficient. So he says, look, some say you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, see, he sets up this bigger question, this bigger question. But who do you say that I am? Look, I I would submit to you right now This is the single most important question that has ever existed. Like you're kind of overblowing it. No, I'm not. I think there's some other good questions later. Nope. Because if you don't answer this one right, it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what your answers are to any other question ever. Who do you say that I am? Not the collective, not your professor, not your family, not your parents, not your in-laws, not your classmates, not your employer, not your business, not your political party, not your affiliations. Who do you say that I am? And all of eternity rests on that answer. All of eternity. I don't know of a single question with more ramifications than that. And he says, look, who who, who are they talking about? Oh, they say this, that, and the other. He goes, but who do you say that I am? For even those of you who have been coming to church your whole life like me, we have to pause. I grew up in the church. I don't even know at what point I was converted. I don't. I've just always known that I was a Christian. And the, and the Bible actually tells me that I was, a, I, was, I was chosen before the foundations of the world. So I just rest on that. When were you saved? Uh, before the earth. Oh, you're one of those. <laughs> Sorry, it's in the Bible. My bad. Okay. Even those of us that have been coming our entire life, even those of us that have been following Jesus for some time, Jesus stops, turns around, puts all the miracles aside, puts all the religious nonsense aside. He says, but who do you... I mean, Jesus could have been like, look, you guys, you guys know by now, right? We don't have to have this discussion. I mean, you guys are following me around. You left your business. You left your families for the most part. I mean, we see them every once in a while, but you're, you're pretty much just camping with a rabbi for a couple of years. So I, I figure you guys are committed to the whole thing. I think you're in on it. You know, we don't get paid. We just go house to house. We minister. It's crazy. Naked demoniacs come running out. I mean, it's kind of insane. It's a little nuts. He turns around to the people that are following him. So you're like, oh, we're past this. I, I come to church. Who do you say that he is? The great professor, scholar, theologian, novelist, C.S. Lewis coined it in a very apt way on a radio program. He said, look, you've got one of three choices. It's known as the great trilemma. You've got, you've got essentially, it boils down to this. You've got three choices. Maybe you've heard this before. Maybe you haven't. 
you have to concede one of three things. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. Here's why. Because he either said he was God and he knew he wasn't, so that makes him a liar. Not a good teacher. Not a great prophet. Not a good philosopher. It's a bad teacher. It's a bad prophet. A bad philosopher if they say they're God and they're not. Jesus is either a liar. He said he's God, but he's not, and he knows it. Or he's a lunatic. He believes he's God, but he's actually not. So he's crazy. There's people that have claimed to be the second coming of Christ. There was one in Florida recently. You see the cult mentality. People say, I am the next coming. Look, I am the son of God. I am the, I am the second incarnation. I am the second coming. You have an option to put Jesus in that category. He's a liar. Said he was God, though he knew he wasn't. He's a lunatic. Said he's God, though he wasn't, but believes he is. Or he said he's God. He meant he's God. And he is God, making him Lord. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. You cannot, by his own words alone, you can't put him into a fourth bucket of good teacher, good philosopher. His own teachings don't allow for that. Especially in the Jewish context. To say that he was God, when all worshipped one God definitively. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. And if you say, Lord, are you willing to then say that if he is God, he knows all things past, present, and future, that he knows more than me, that he knows what's best for me, and even in the midst of my trials and in the midst of my failures, he loves me more than I will ever experience love on earth. Did you know that God cannot love you any more? He cannot love you any less than he does right now. It's not possible. There is nothing you can say, think, or do that will make him love you more or less than he already does, always has, and always will. Liar, lunatic, or Lord, who do you say that Jesus is? And I can't, you can't abdicate that responsibility to me. You can't. You can't bring that question to me and say, figure it out, let me know what my answer is. I can't answer that for you. And Jesus looks at the men who had been following him and says, who do you say that I am? And so to the church tonight, who do we say that he is? And when we say it, do we actually believe it or are we just babbling religious nonsense? My parents said he's God, so I should say he's God. And Pastor Christ right now is currently making a point that he's God, so I should just say he's God, so he'll move on to the next verse. Do you believe in your heart that Jesus is who he says he is? And look, I've done it in the past. I'll probably do it again. I could show you a list of 20 times he claims to be God. Believe absolutely none of this theological nonsense when you hear pastors, preachers, teachers of all stripes say, well, he never actually said he's God. He just referred to himself as the son of God, which was a messianic term. On multiple occasions, he did. And so, so be weary of anyone that says, he never actually made that claim. I would have done it tonight. We don't have time. I could show you 20 claims where he absolutely did claim his divinity. And he's doing it again right now. So he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, here we go. Truck driver, right? 
just coming into the scene. I'll tell you, oh, yeah, answer, answer. It's like my son, Ethan, just a total dork, just wants to answer every, just every answer. He wants to do all his homework on Monday. I don't understand the child, right? He's just so excited. Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now he just confessed two things. There's a reason he said you are the Christ and the son of God. He wasn't like you're Jesus and you're also Jesus. He wasn't being redundant. Christ is a messianic term. It was, it was the one that would be sent to redeem all people. But son of the living God is a direct claim of divinity. He says, you're not only the Messiah that God sent, you are God himself in one sentence, two claims. Peter knew what he was talking about. Peter knew what he was saying. He wasn't being redundant. He said, you are the Messiah that was sent to be slaughtered on our behalf. And I can't even barely believe it at times, but you are God himself. No one claims to be son of the living God. We are adopted sons and daughters. Jesus is the son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. In fact, one of the reasons he doesn't have an earthly father is so that when he hung from the cross, his bloodline would run straight to heaven. And it was pure, perfect, sinless, blameless. He did not inherit the sin of Adam with an earthly father. He had a heavenly father. And so he was the son of God. He was both Christ and son of living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Peter doesn't even know that at this, at this moment, he's a messenger of God. He doesn't even realize that the reason he understands this to be true is because God gave it to him. Some of you want Jesus and, and, and God the Father and the Holy Spirit to speak to you in such weird and crazy ways. I just wish I could hear something from God and we always think it's got to be just radical and life-changing and just move to another country or get a different job, right? Sometimes it says, if you believe Jesus is God, you have experienced his revelation. We blow right by it. We just assume we came up with that. I came to it. I watched a bunch of YouTube clips, seemed to make sense. Came here a couple weeks ago, you yelled at me, you know, just went home, watched a few movies, Netflix, figured it out on my own. I just got it, sort of, you know. We think we came up with this, and Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. That's not our heart predisposition is to figure out who God is on our own. He has to intercede on our behalf. So in this moment, Peter doesn't even realize that he's come as he's as a messenger of God proclaiming. And you could say that he's now truly the first Christian, you could say at this point. He's now a messenger of God proclaiming the Messiah is here and the Messiah is actually God. And he's on fire. He's just excited. And Jesus is like, God himself revealed that to you. Now you're blessed. It is not flesh and blood. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Verse 18, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and our, our dear friends and brothers in the Catholic Church have gone crazy on this. You need to know that this is a massive cause of division in the church. 
And it's heartbreaking for Jesus, but we need to understand it. I can tell you this, just right up front, I am thankful that Jesus does not rest the success or foundation of his church on any man. Least of which is probably Peter. I just gotta, right? Like just the the truck driver. Like, you reek, come here. Build my whole church on you. What? (laughs) I'll come out in the water again, but I don't know what you're talking about. I thank Jesus every day that though some of our brothers in Christ have taken this wrong, that he is not meaning that Peter will be the foundation of this church. Peter's own testimony would negate that. And and all I'm going to do, I could get into a super deep, what we go this way and this way. This is the only really kind of original language study I want to do with you. When he says this, he says, and I also say that you are Peter, Peter, Petros, that's his name. That's the original language. It's a masculine form. Petros, you are Petros. And on this rock, Petra, feminine. It's a different word with a different meaning. On this Petros, listen, Petros, on this Petra, I'm going to build my church. It's as simple as that. It's akin to saying this. I'm in a quad with a, with a movie producer and director. If he came up and he's casting, which he's currently doing from some pretty epic movies, and I can't tell you because I'm like in the inner squad now at church, right? So I can't tell you about these rad projects that he's got coming out, okay? And so, look, he's casting right now for some epic flicks. Epic flicks. I can't wait for his next one. And he's casting. It would be akin to him coming up to an actor, a line of actors, guys, gals, actors and actresses. Let's say he pulls out two, the best, the leading, the guy, the girl, masculine, feminine. Y'all get it. He's like, hey, look. On this actor, or with this actor, I'm going to use this actress to make my movie. It's akin to saying with this actor, look, actor, sorry, look, actor, it's with this actress that I'm going to make my movie. He's not speaking in the same terms anymore. And let's be glad that he's not, right? Let's be glad that the foundation of the church does not rest on Peter. The rock, it's akin to saying, I wrote it better in my notes. This is akin to saying, you are an actor, and with this actress, I'm going to make a movie. No one would be like, he's talking about the dude. That's what he meant. No, he used two different words for a clear reason. David Guzik said this, Peter, by his own testimony, did not see himself as the rock on which the church was founded. He wrote that we are living stones, but Jesus is the cornerstone. We could say that Peter was the first believer, that he was the first rock, but he was among many rocks. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5, written by Peter himself, says, Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, you also are living stones and are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
He says, look, you're an actor. And it's with this actress that I'm going to make my movie. Now, I will give you that what Jesus meant by that could be one of two things. He very well could have been referring to himself as the rock. 100% do I agree with that? Yes. There are some people that disagree and think that it was upon Peter's confession he'll build the church. Therefore, Jesus is saying, anyone that professes me as God, King, and Christ, this is the confession that I will build the church. Essentially saying, look, I'm going to build the church of those who confess me. That makes sense too. But what we cannot say then is that Peter is the foundation of the church. And thank goodness, Peter's up there right now. I can guarantee you just being like, it ain't about me. It's not. Did you see the whole thing in the boat? Clearly, right? So just remember that, that Jesus builds his church, as he says, and whether he builds it upon those who confess as a collective and or himself, both are true, but none of it has to do with us. It has to do with him. And so he says, and I also say to you that you are Peter, Petros, and on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. You need to know this. Jesus builds his church. Say, yeah, but there's these guys that have in the closest. Look, men build false churches. Men and women can build false churches. I'll give you that. I'll give you a list longer than yours that proves it. But only Jesus builds his church. Men and women can build false churches. Jesus is currently building his true church. And it's cross-denominational, but it's all set, defined, sealed by him. So Jesus builds his church. That's where, that's where, and that's one of the things that pastors, this is where we start to, it's like, man, what can I do to ratchet up the game a little bit? And Jesus is like, oh, here it goes. All right, step out of the boat, genius, right? How do we build? How do I get more? How do we? When the church grows, we thank Jesus for growing his church. That's it. We don't look, look what I did. I could do this again. Send me somewhere else. Pay me more. No, Jesus builds his church. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And by the way, I had this in my notes. Notice whose church it is and who builds it. Men can build false churches, but only Jesus builds his church. And notice that this is also a claim of divinity. What? Jesus did not say as a prophet would. Jesus did not say as a teacher would that Jesus is building his community, God's community. Jesus says, my church. You are not, to Jesus, we are not God's people. We are his people because he is God. He can speak first person. It's a claim of divinity. The, the uh, commentator France says, what is striking is the boldness of Jesus's description of it as my community rather than God's. Because to Jesus, they're one and the same. And he says, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail. And this is a promise. Some of you need more promises in your life. Here's one, right? Because you're in college and you're like, oh, it's awful out there. 
By the way, it's not better in business. You're just going to get to business for like, oh, good, now I get paid to do stuff. It's still bad, right? Here's the promise. Satan, sin, and death cannot prevail against Jesus' kingdom. Do you believe that? Do you believe Jesus is losing kingdom ground to the world? Because a lot of times we think one thing or the other. Look, if culture is declining, so is the kingdom. We have to remember that as the world declines, his kingdom still rises. He is still actively currently building his kingdom, though the world is falling apart. Don't put them on the same level that one must equal the other. Because the culture's going down, because America keeps electing just foolish, we'll use as a nice word, people coming up with, we'll go with foolish laws that are just absolutely contrary to what God says. The church is falling. Nonsense. In China, the church is rising faster than anywhere in the world. The kingdom rises, though culture may fall. And by the way, it always has been. Don't allow your parents to convince you that you're the generation that caused the decline of the whole world. It's been going on since roughly the Garden of Eden, okay? <laughs> Let's just throw that date out there and say, right? The Bible says every generation, thousands of years ago, they're like, you are a wicked and perverse generation. We're like, I know we are. He, no, he was talking thousands of years ago. Hasn't gotten better. It's always been headed downhill, Okay. Satan, sin, and death will not, cannot prevail against Jesus' kingdom. So his kingdom is rising. Though the world is falling, and this is a precious promise in dark and discouraging times for the church, abroad and certainly in the coming years here as well. Pastor Rob sat down with some of us young teachers a long time ago and said, look, I'm bringing you on. Most of you will be ordained you need to think about the fact that at some point you're preaching from a prison. You in or you out. And all of us geniuses are like, let's go. Heard prison ain't that bad, right? And it's not getting any better by the cultural standpoint. But would you rest in the promise that the kingdom is being built? It says this in Hebrews 2.14. This verse rocks my world, because I love these sort of verses. I wear t-shirts with skulls. You'll see why I love this one. It says, inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death. Satan holds the power of death, and through Jesus' death, he defeated Satan. Hebrews 2.14. When you're bummed out, read Hebrews 2.14. Or Colossians 2.15, having disarmed principalities and power. He's speaking of the cross now. So much happened on the cross. One of the things that we perhaps never knew happened on the cross is found in Colossians 2.15. Atonement, propitiation, all of that, all the Bible nerd words, all of them happened on the cross. But maybe there's a word you haven't thought of on the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made on the cross a public spectacle of them. It's like Jesus was mocking death on the cross. He says, you have nothing now, nothing. 
You're going to try death and I'm going to win. He made a public spectacle of Satan and his demons on the cross. And I'm telling you, no fake religion at the core when they're making up their false claims, no fake religion is like, you know what? We should strip our God naked, beat him to a pulp and kill him. We should have people spit in his face, mock him, beat him, subject him to the worst punishment ever created by man. No false religion at the core of their faith is the utter mockery of their God. You can't make this stuff up. And he said he made a public spectacle of him on the cross. Because he knew he's ushering in a new kingdom. He's paying for sins past, present, and future a public spectacle. And it says, triumphing over them in it. Even on the cross, there was triumph. Before the resurrection, there was triumph. And he says this, The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And some people think this is why Peter and then therefore the Catholic papacy, all the popes are, have the key to forgiveness and unforgiveness. Don't fall for that. What he says here is is a classic rabbinic tradition. In the Hebrew days, the the rabbi had the responsibility of binding and unbinding, binding and loosening people to the responsibilities of the law. I'll give you an example. Take it from ancient rabbinic teaching, ancient rabbinic sources. Guy comes to church, says, hey, my dog died. No joke. My dog died. Rabbi says, where? Says, in my house says your house is unclean. Same guy comes to the house, same reverse back, right? Like quantum leap, like do it over again. Guy comes. He says, my dog died. Rabbi says, where? He says, I'm outside my house. He says, your house is clean. Did I say unclean or clean last time? Unclean. Inside the house, unclean. He says, he died outside. He says, your house is clean. Go back. Same guy comes back. Just my dog died. He says, where? He says, on my front porch. Rabbi says, was his nose facing your house or was it facing away from your house? It was facing my house, unclean. It was facing away from my house, clean. The rabbis at the time had the responsibility of binding and loosing people to the law as they saw fit. What he's saying here to the apostle Peter and the other apostles later on in other chapters, he would give them all this call, which is to say, you've been directly chosen by me, include Paul, because Jesus showed up from heaven and, and, and called him to be an apostle as well. He says, you, as the direct apostles of me, you will set the framework for the new covenant. And he did, didn't he? He used the apostles to set the framework for the new covenant. But the new covenant is all about being defined by Jesus himself. That's all he's saying. It's a, I know it's a theological whirlwind at times, but he's not saying now that the Catholic Pope has the ability to bind and loosen people from their sin or from any requirements. He's not saying that. He's saying, look, as the priests, as the rabbis did in the culture then, he says, as they were doing that, you guys are going to be used, called by me to set the parameters of the new covenant. 
And then the Holy Spirit would come and author scripture through them. So the Holy Spirit was in charge the whole time. Yay, right? Because Peter would have screwed it up, right? So that's all he's saying. It might be a little tough to grasp, but just know that Jesus' kingdom does not rest on any man. On any man. We are defined by him alone. And it says, Then he commanded his disciples that they should go and tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Verse 21, now we get into the failure. And I hope I've built you up, hopefully excited you a little bit, because here it comes. Here it comes. It's a brutal ending. It's the bracket that says failure. You knew it was coming. It's in the title. You could have left by now, but you stayed. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Then Peter took him aside. So Peter's clearly shocked at this now. He shouldn't be. He should have read his Bible. Isaiah 53 alone, starting in verse three, says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Speaking of the coming Messiah, who Peter just declared him to be, as of the one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before they even began trying crucifixion. He would be pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. And Jesus came and said, I'm the good shepherd. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. It's amazing that Isaiah was speaking of this in past tense. He was Speaking into the future, it had already happened because God was moving in and through Isaiah to pen hundreds, thousands of years before they, the, 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 they even began to think about crucifixion. And it went through many versions before it even got to a cross. It began with one impaling stick and he's writing about it. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. How do you predict that hundreds of years ahead of time? He opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like sheep that was before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. And Jesus was laid to death in a rich man's tomb. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Some of you thought humans came up with the concept of crucifixion. God came up with the idea of the cross before humans even existed. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish, anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. 
and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the chapter of Isaiah that Jewish temples to this day do not teach. They do not teach. And I think it's by God's sense of humor that out of the Dead Sea Scrolls, Isaiah is there in perfect form. All of it. I've seen it in person. The original autograph. They've put a fake one on display now and they even brought it to Calvary Community. It's a fake one, by the way. If anyone you thought you thought you were seeing the real thing, it's not. They're far too concerned with someone blowing up. I've been in the Circle Museum in Israel that at the time, back in 1998, still had the original copy of Isaiah on display from start to finish. And Jews today can't even get this chapter. And Peter should have known that this was going to happen. And yet, he said this, and Peter took him aside, verse 22, and began to rebuke him. Peter is nothing if not bold. Rebukes Jesus. Says, far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you. Now it seems valiant at the time. He wants to protect Jesus. This can't be you. This can't happen. I just professed you as the Messiah. You've come to save us from everything. Now you're talking about dying again? It can't be. And Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. I don't know about you, but I don't know how, I don't know, I don't know how you come up with a bigger disc than that. Like what's bigger than that? Like, hey, homie, get behind me, Satan. Jesus pretty much lays it all out at that point. Does he not? Get behind me. Satan. See, in this moment, Peter didn't realize, just as he didn't realize that he was being used as a messenger of God to proclaim the Christ, in this moment, he was being used as a messenger of Satan. And so Jesus looks at Peter and sees the work of Satan and says, get behind me, Satan. I know that's you. He says, get behind me. And some people take, you know, take the trail of thought, like, you know, Jesus doesn't need to be fended, that whole thing. It's anemic. I think it's an anemic illustration because I think Jesus himself answers it. He turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. Now he's speaking to the work of Satan. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. That, that is the issue. That in that moment, Peter was being used of the devil and he had his mind not on the things of God, but on the things of this world. That was the great offense. He didn't realize that it was being used of Satan in that moment. I wrote down that Peter didn't make a deliberate choice to reject God and embrace Satan. He simply let his mind settle on the things of men instead of the things of God. And Satan then took advantage of it. One of the ways that we fail in our faith is by forgetting or refusing to trust that his ways are higher than our ways. Isaiah 55, just two chapters later, eight through nine says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Thank goodness. Nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. 
For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. So God says, my ways are higher than your ways. He says, Peter, you don't get it. Satan will have you focus on the things of this world, temporal satisfaction, temporal solutions, physical solutions to spiritual problems, physical physical satisfaction for spiritual depravity, for spiritual vapidness and loneliness and voids. That was the great sin. That was Peter's great failure in his faith in that moment. It's that he saw only earthly solutions to a heavenly cosmic story. Higher than your ways. All of us bring stuff here tonight that we bring before Jesus and with our lives He says, if you love me, you'll obey me. It's not that you have to obey him and then you'll learn to love him. It's that for those that do love Jesus, we will begin to more so by the grace of God, by the empowering of the Holy Spirit, we'll begin to follow his ways. And all of us bring things that we put up in front of Jesus and say, look, this is out front and Jesus is behind. This is what I'm focused on. This is what I'm doing. Regardless of what Jesus says, he's behind. And Jesus shows up and says, you've got it backwards. He says, you and your earthly solutions get behind me. You and your temporal depravity get behind me. Some of us brought addiction here tonight. And you know. You know that we're to be consumed constantly by nothing but God's grace and mercy. Whether it's alcohol, whether it's drugs, whether it's pornography. Some of you have brought your addiction here tonight. And I say those things because they sting. And I say porn because I was addicted to it for 17 years, even into marriage, even into fatherhood. And I still counsel men in and out of it consistently. And the number for women is rising. Because the lower the women set the bar, the more men are willing to meet it. Some of you dragged your addiction here today. You say, I know what Jesus says about it, but my addiction's out in front and Jesus is behind. He says, you've got it backwards. It says, get behind me. Some of you brought anger issues. Some of you are just flat out mean. Just flat out mean. You're angry and you're mean. You're mad. You want everyone to know about it. You want everyone to be aware. And Jesus comes to bring peace. And you put your anger out front and Jesus says, get behind me. Some of us bring comparison. Ladies, ladies. Look, I've joked. Men, men just for the most part don't care. Ladies in your comparison, which is really the Bible word for that is covetousness. And you compare. That's why you troll her Instagram. Right? That's why you look her up on Facebook. That's why you look at her the way you do when she walks into the room. Ladies, your, compar- your comparison is really covetousness. I want what she has because I'm not content with what God gave me. In terms of looks, in terms of status, in terms of employment, in terms of things, car, jewelry, shoes, I don't care. That covetousness, you say, that's what's out in front. Jesus says, get behind me.
Some of you bring gossip. Girls call it girls' night out. Guys call it the locker room. We bring gossip, slander. You talk about people in ways that you would never, and the worst part is, is that then you play nice, nice in front of them. I love you, brother. Yo, we're, you know, Jesus, we're friends, we're church and school and blah, blah, blah. Then you get back home with your little inner circle and you tear people apart. Why? Because you're not confident in who Jesus says you are. So you can either elevate yourself, which is ego, or you can tear other people down. But some way you want people to be on an equal level with you. We all bring lust to the table, but men specifically. I know this because I am one. Look, forget porn. Let's say all porn stopped on the planet right now. Men don't need porn. We do enough in our head. We've got mental gymnastics that, ladies, you can't even fathom, and it's disgusting. And Jesus says, if you even look at another woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. We're like, at least, I'm not, at least I didn't cheat on my wife. Those guys are idiots. Jesus says, you've all cheated on me. You've all cheated on her. So we bring our lust to the table, put it out front. Jesus says, get behind me. Look, I was there. I I was there in in Fallujah and I watched Iraqis log on to the internet for the very first time. What do you think was on their mind? What do you think they Googled first? Naked women. Burkas haven't fixed lust. You You can put your wife head to toe in black garb. It will not solve the sin in the minds of men and women. Jesus says, get behind me, lying. So we're just habitual liars. Myself included, I spent most of my life as a habitual liar. Bend the truth, find any which way to make sure that you aren't found out for the coward, for the failure that you are. And I know because I've been there, both as an adolescent, as a college student, as a professional. We lie like crazy. Little lies, big lies, it doesn't matter as long as it makes us look good. Jesus comes as the source of truth and we put lies out front. He says, get behind me. So you're like, are you still gonna go? A couple more. Some of us bring ungodly relationships here tonight. Not married, but you're in a sexual relationship. Bible calls it fornicating. It's an F word we don't use enough in this culture. Jesus says, Sex is a beautiful gift from God. I can't wait for you to have it with the person I've called you to. We say, forget that. I've got needs, I've got desires. And so we put that out front. He says, get behind me. Some of you come with unevenly yoked relationships. I fear women struggle with this more. He'll, 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 he'll go to church more if we get married. I don't mean to mock you, but it, 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 it's absolutely absurd. There's an old adage that men marry women, hoping they'll stay the same to find out that they change. Women marry men, hoping they'll change to find out they stay the same. Married couples laugh at that. Singles are like, I don't, I don't like that. And every married couple gets it. And so I mean, you're bringing unyoke, you're, you're, you're dating a non-Christian. You think I'm going to be a missionary to them. I'm going I'm to serve them and love them and show them Jesus. That's nowhere in the Bible. That's called being unevenly yoked. 
in your dating relationship. You don't even have to have sexual component to be in sin in your relationship. Some of you are dating non-Christians. Say, but my feelings matter most. That's what's out front. Jesus says, get behind me. Some of you are bringing idolatry in your relationships. Some of you have good Christian relationships. You're not having sex, right? You're both Christians and you worship each other. How do I know what's an idol in my life? Anything you wake up in the morning more excited about than Jesus, that's an idol in your life. And it can be a good thing. It can be great things. It can be kids and marriage and and career and school. It can be good things, but they're not God things. And so we put our spouse, our boyfriend, our girlfriend, even as Christians out in front, say, that's where I'm headed. Jesus says, get behind me. Lastly, unforgiveness. Some of you bring unforgiveness here tonight. Unwilling to let go. Doesn't mean it has to stop hurting. It doesn't mean you have to act like it never happened. It doesn't mean you have to negate justice if it should be served. Doesn't mean you go back to blindly trusting someone. None of those things are forgiveness. Some of you are dragging past, present issues here and you just hold on and you're a prisoner of your unforgiveness. And what you're really saying is that I'm God and I'll decide who's forgiven. And Jesus says, I'm the son of man, get behind me. Some of you need to forgive tonight. And here's our application. I'll close with this. Peter was a bold man of faith. I love Peter for that. Just a bold knucklehead for Jesus. Step out on the water, whatever, I'll do it. We're going to see next week, dude's going to grab a sword and it'll all go south. Including the body part, right? He was a bold man of faith and he was a follower of Jesus, but he failed miserably at times. And in this moment, he put the things of the world out front and Jesus says, get behind me. So tonight I'd encourage us to put Jesus out in front as we go into this time of worship and I thank you for letting me go long. Put Jesus out in front. Of any of those things that stirred in you, repentance, brokenness before Jesus, thank him for that. That's the Holy Spirit, it's not me. I just put out words, the Holy Spirit makes them a sermon. Bring those things as I pray God has brought them to the surface. Now bring them to the cross. Put Jesus back out in front. Trust who he is and what he says is higher than who you are and how you feel. And just as we talked about last week, how do I know what Jesus says? What are the three things? You didn't think you were going to be tested tonight. What are the three things from last week? College students can't remember a thing. Brain dump. What's the first way you can know what Jesus says? Man, so many rules. I wish someone wrote a book about it. Read the word, right? No, I've done that before. Yeah, and Peter had cast his net before. Read his word. What's the second way? Community. Get into a small group. Rub your really bad ideas on other people that have really bad ideas before you. So they can tell you that's a really bad idea. Trust what Jesus says instead. Get in community, inner varsity, young life, or quads, which you can sign up for afterwards. Part of community is being part of this community right now, but it's also small community. We see that in Acts. Large gatherings and small gatherings. Because you're vulnerable with just a few dudes. 
You're vulnerable with just a three, a couple gals. And what's the third way? Pray, I just want to hear from God, and yet you're not talking to him. You're not listening to him. Press into the word. See what he says about the issues. Talk to me and Zach about the issues in your life. How Jesus wants to deal with them. Not how we would deal with them, because we've done it wrong before you. How Jesus wants to deal with them. Get into community so that you can be a part of this fellowship. You can be a part of the family that protects each other. And pray. Pray. Jesus came so that you could have a personal relationship. You would not need a pastor. You would not need a priest to get to God. You have that access via the Holy Spirit. And so our response tonight is to put Jesus out front. And I pray you will join me in doing that. Let's pray. Jesus, even as I grapple with with reliving some of my habitual sin, I'm just, I'm thankful that you extracted it from me. And I've got new sin that I've replaced to be sure, but by the grace of God, I'm being sanctified. And so I pray that those that are here tonight would simply be excited with that which was stirred up by you to give it away to you. The lust, the greed, the anger, the fornication, the addiction, that we would simply drop it off at the cross tonight that you would be out front, that we would keep our eyes squarely on you and that we would care enough about you that we would want to be in fellowship with you. Cause us to meditate on your word. Holy Spirit, drive us into community as you build your church and make us a people of prayer, willing to speak to the God that we profess. Jesus, your ways are higher than our ways. I, for one, am tired of the ramifications of thinking my solutions are best. Be glorified, Jesus. I'm excited about these coming weeks where we see how you build up the body again amidst these failures, but I pray that this time would be convicting as it should be, as it has been for me, that we would dig deep, but that we would see that following you is a picture of heaven. It says in Revelation 19, 14, that the armies of heaven clothed in white, on horses. They follow you, Jesus. They're behind you, Jesus, which means you're out in front. So Jesus, be out in front of our worship, of our lives, of our decisions, of our devotion, of our community, of our prayer. Be out front, Jesus this week and in every week to come, not for our glories, not so that anyone would see us, but that the broken and fallen world would see you. Jesus, we love you. We praise you. And now we're going to sing to you on your throne, all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We take communion every Sunday night. Nothing magical happens with this. Zach and I haven't done anything weird to make it something different. This is simply, as Jesus says, a way by which we remember that spectacle of the cross where he defeated and triumphed over Satan, sin, and death. And so we take the bread first because his body was broken before his blood could be shed and then we drink of the, the wine or the grape juice which atoned then for our sin. And I'd encourage you again, if this sermon stirred up in you conviction, not condemnation, but conviction, praise Jesus for that and then drop it off at his feet as we worship. Amen? Let's sing.